Wake up in the morning, are you gone? Hello and welcome to Real Indigenous, where we talk about everything on your screen and everything in between. Yeah, tonight uh, we're going to cover one of the uh, highlights of the film festival year. We're going to be talking about the Sundance Film Festival and some of the highlights just generally and then we'll get into some specifics about the uh, the indigenous and native works the stuff that you might see over the next year that's starting a buzz now because of Sundance so hopefully we'll have a, a good time and preparing you to get ready for some awesome shorts and feature films we're relying on sunrise to fill Angela and Tully in because we didn't get to watch <laughs> any of it <laughs> didn't get to watch any. You could have. Have you got You didn't watch your movie, Angela? No, I didn't think I could. Yeah, there were some available online. I think Fancy Dance was online. I know that some oh. people had watched it. They got it like a virtual ticket. It was like twenty bucks, I think. I think. Oh, I would have done that. Uh, I don't know if they're going to do it next year. I know that it was. A question whether they were going to go virtual this year. Certainly last year they went virtual because of the pandemic and they were concerned about an outbreak. And then this year they continued it and they really refined it from last year. But there was there were just fewer films available. And, um, you know, like there was, I think, a one pass for all the virtual stuff, which was make maybe, I don't know, maybe a third, I'm guessing, of the actual larger amount of films available if you went physically and then last year they released everything at the same time so like when there was a physical premiere there was also a digital premiere and then the physical premiere physical premieres you know it's like social distancing and very limited tickets but you could see it at the same time that it actually started i think a lot of people liked that last year but this year there was a uh, a delay they would premiere it physically and then, you know, two days later or something, it would come online. So is the programming still inclusive of Native and Indigenous films this year? Were there more? Were there less? About the same? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think just what I'm noticing over the pan period of the pandemic, and we're kind of out of the period where people were like making stuff or trying to make stuff, that period is almost over. And there were fewer films that were Native or Indigenous made during that period uh, that didn't start prior to the pandemic and we're now kind of seeing some that were made after restrictions were loosened in some states like Oklahoma for example so there's more content than there was in the last couple years that's new I guess on the feature side and maybe in the series but it seemed like there were sh a fewer shorts this year at Sundance oh, okay there were actually more shorts at Imaginative than there were at Sundance this year. Maybe we're just seeing the, the tail end of what people could accomplish during the pandemic. It seemed like overall there were more films. <laughs> there were more films this year. And then in addition to that, there was a, a good parody of like gender. It seemed like I think there was higher than 50% female directed material this year, which was higher than it was last year. Like that's a, that's cool. There was more international cinema uh, this year than there was last year. And, it, and I think that is partly because there's a change in leadership. 
there's this new director, Eugene Hernandez, who used to be the one of the executive directors at the uh, New York Film Festival, which brought in a lot of international cinema. So I think he's brought that with him. And with that diversity of world cinema, there's a lot more indigenous perspectives, I think, uh, that are international. Well, I, I did notice that one of the documentaries that's indigenous-based won an award. Um, yeah, they're bad press. They're yeah, the bad press was one that won an award for documentary and um, feature film. And uh, so that was directed by uh, private, I mean, two individuals that have worked together before in, in the form of documentary, um, Joe Peeler and Rebecca Lansbury Baker. And Rebecca is Muskogee Creek. And so the documentary is really focusing on the Muskogee Nation press and the turmoil of its relationship to the tribe. And really, this is one of the very few nations that actually has a free press um, indicated in their, whatever their laws are. Um, but the documentary looks at a moment where that uh, ruling about free press is taken away and the leadership of the tribe has authority over what can be printed and, you know, like the specific the specifics about what can be said, who is approving that. And it's not somebody that's a journalist it's somebody that's like in the tribal council, right? So like just these larger questions about free press and the more complicated side of sovereignty when it comes to governance, you know? So like, that's an interesting scenario. And we kind of see a, a journalist as she kind of fights about, uh, fights with her journalist colleagues and people that are running for tribal council to see if they can get a new law passed to repeal the government, con the governance control over the press. So that's primarily the conflict of the film. Well, it's it really good. A, yeah, it must have made a good impression if it got the special jury award. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really amazing. Uh, considering there's a lot of documentaries this year, I felt like there were some really good indigenous documentaries. There was one called Twice Colonized that um looks at an inuit judge she sort of like reconnects with her identity but also confronts domestic abuse and then is concerned about all sorts of political and social and e ecological issues and it just seemed like that was a really great portrait of this inuit attorney iu peter and it just it, it also it was working as a genre about elders. It's like a, definitely an elder cinema genre film where we kind of see an elder as they grapple of becoming of age of what an elder's expected to accomplish, being knowledgeable and passing wisdom and um, being a keeper of culture and then being supportive of the future. And she's struggling with all those things. And so we see her come of age. We figure out how she can also manage the things that are going on in her life. She's also like suffering from domestic abuse and a disconnection from her family to some degree. And it was really uh, challenging to watch at times. And then it's also very poetic. It's not just like a straight documentary. We kind of like see this sort of jumping around of thoughts and philosophy. It was really hmm. beautiful too. And you kind of had to 
really pay attention to guess like where we're at in time and what issue we're kind of dealing with and what these relationships are that she's interacting with. And she kind of travels around the globe and talks to a variety of different uh, indigenous leaders. And you are put in a position where you have to figure out, you know, where you're at for a second. And then, and then it reveals it later. And at the same time, she's trying to write a book and the, the title of twice colonized. It's really interesting how it reveals what the meaning of that particular title is. Uh, the idea of an Inuit culture being colonized twice by Canada and then also Greenland. So it works on that level. But then as um, she starts to investigate, how do we address sovereignty? She starts to recognize that uh, both of these countries have also been colonized, that Greenland's been colonized by Denmark. Mm -hmm. And then Canada, you know, has been also colonized by two other countries. And their residences, you know, that have this deeper, complex issues of identity and politics and um, just the ingrained agreeance with these larger colonial entities. And it seems to parallel with her own like forms of domestic abuse. So that was interesting to just like learn that, oh, yeah, we should be thinking about like these countries as colonized. I, I don't think of Greenland as being a colonized country the complexity there of like having to work through an identity that has been colonized twice. It's really, all those things were really amazing revelations. I feel like that could have won as well, but it's really bad press is like, it's literally issues that I think go under talked about. And the fact that there's only like a handful, literally a handful, I think there are five, maybe six tribes in the entire U.S. that have any statement about freedom of press, like that's an issue that should be addressed, especially as we start to become more self-empowered and self-governing. Uh, all of that is going to go into a direction, you know, of abuse of power at some point, and someone should be able to hold them accountable. Yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> the documentary is really great and like revealing intimacy of the 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 people involved following people in the, the process of uh, getting elected, uh, going through the details of tribal meeting. So if anybody's curious about any of those details, it really kind of gets you into the, the weeds of tribal operation. I feel like that might be a reason why it won. So yeah, bad press. That was great. Muskogee Creek, Rebecca Lansbury Baker. From people who have said they've watched it, tell me that they were surprised about how much access this documentary even had with all the different tribal uh, entity people who are representing in this film. Mm -hmm. And little side note is that I met with the, the Muscogee Creek uh, newspaper press like mm -hmm. right before all that happened. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things they were very proud of. And they talked about say, where they were like, we're like one of the few people who actually have free press. We can write about anyone or anything. If the chief messes up, we have capacity to write about that and not be censored in any way and then when that changed over we see what happens you know and it was really mm -hmm. crazy because it was like not too long before all that happened and i met with them and they were very proud of that and i bet that was fucking hard for them to deal with when it when it changed yeah you really see you really feel it when they talk about it and you i mean you can totally understand i mean those things are happening on the larger level of the united states where we take for granted the fact that we have a press that is 
able to be separate, even though we talk about it being biased or whatever, at least it's still separate and it's not like a dictatorship or something. Yeah, and I bet that influenced the the voting of that movie because press is a big deal right now. Like, you know, we're seeing TV shows that are showing press as this great thing. We're seeing movies that are talking about the free press and how important it is. And so this is just another step in that for the, for like a universal storytelling as opposed to just the Muscogee Creek story. Yeah, absolutely. And that seemed to be a theme also. So like there was the series, there's a Showtime series that premiered called Murder in Bighorn. And it's basically a three-part series, basically an hour episode each that's investigating missing murdered indigenous women in the Northern Cheyenne Reservation and along the border of Bighorn, which is northern Montana. And we primarily look in the first episode at like two missing indigenous women and the sort of uh, trials of the press and trials of the family to have these issues addressed from the local police, the FBI. Kaysera Stoops Pretty Places is one of those missing women and Selena Not Afraid. So the series sets those two up and then each episode, we're kind of confronted by a series of uh, new questions about, or new theories and the new questions that result about why the system is ignoring these women, um, who might be the perpetrator, and then what really is happening when it comes to the organization of the police. And then we start to investigate a variety of different other uh, individuals that have had gone missing and then had have more maybe equitable approaches to their search so that we're able to kind of compare and contrast across time periods and based on whose story we're looking at and uh, and then we kind of see the the system work and system not work and it's interesting how it really reveals the incestuous relationships between people in the town and the police and the people on the reservation and the police a lot of this is through the perspective of a journalist. So like, that's the link also is like, we get uh, the perspective of Luella Brain, who's also, you know, like a local journalist there and is out there with, um, with the families as they're searching and is really like pressing for answers as to why nothing's being addressed, trying to give these families some voice, trying to be supportive. That was directed by Rizal Benali and then Matthew Gulkin. So Matthew Gulkin has done a, a series of other um, true crime series. I think one of them was on Showtime before. Uh, and then Rizal Benali is uh, Lakota and Navajo, and one of the writers of the first season of Dark Winds. Well, I guess that kind of explains why Showtime is actually putting some money in the marketing for it. Oh, that's, yeah, seen, that's good. Yeah, I've seen sponsored tweets for it. There's articles that are showing up. So there's, they're definitely creating a buzz for this series. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's, I mean, and you know what, I mean, a premiere is on February 3rd, so they, they should be doing that. It comes out in two days from the yeah. recording of this. Um, so the first one will have already aired by the time people probably hear this, I would um, imagine. Yeah. But uh, they should keep watching. You get, get showtime, watch these episodes. Um, it is interesting to see. Uh, an outsider, two outsiders, essentially, and be embraced by the community because, you know, I mean, she's a Lakota, a Navajo, but even though she's indigenous, she's not Cheyenne. 
but it seems like from what I've heard and like interviews that have happened, it seems like she was helping guide uh, the other filmmaker, uh, Matthew Galkin, through the process of like, how do you work with an indigenous community? That seems to be part of like the the press that I'm seeing. So I think that's a really positive thing just about the making of the film. And then she, I believe, directs the first and the last episode. And those particular episodes, we really get into the, the I guess, tribal politics, really. You kind of see how family members kind of go at each other. And it's not mm. like everybody's on the same page about who or what needs to be blamed and what the procedure might be. And so it just gets really real for a moment about about how indigenous communities separate from issues that are happening to them, how indigenous communities can have tensions within. So I feel like that's, you know, that was interesting to see. And it is difficult to, it's just maddening to hear the inactivity of the police and the FBI. It's just, I just kept yelling at the TV. I, I just... So just if you go in, just be aware, like you're you're going to get mad. It's going to be sad. Yeah. Content and... warning. Yeah. Frustrating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All of the things yeah. that we face whenever the next poster goes up on Facebook about somebody missing and, you know, stories of the, com- the communities having to train themselves on how to do door to doors, look in the places and talk to the people that the police won't take the time to do. And it's a lot of work and mm-hmm. there's no there's sometimes no resolve and then there's sometimes no appreciation. It seems like, you know, if, if the issues are not resolved, you, you, you're sitting with lots of questions and, and unresolved with family and no answers. And then it just seems like people just get angry and frustrated. And that was a, you know, 154 minute documentary total. And that was rough a little bit emotionally. Yeah, but important to watch. Um, so that's another documentary series um, that could also have probably, I don't think it was eligible for any awards since it premiered in the section that was not um, competition. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was a premiere. I think most of the competition from what I'm seeing are works that are not distributed or didn't come into the festival with distribution, oh. um, at least with the indigenous works. That's probably not true with some of the other ones, but so bad press, um, murder and bighorn, twice colonized. Um, there is a indigenous uh, focused short, not a non-indigenous director of this Peruvian tribe as they attempt to uh, capture a um, uh, what do you call it? Those large fish that are like bottom feeders, catfish. Oh, a catfish. <laughs> yeah, it's basically just like. A traditional process of catfish capturing in this film called Shirampari Legacies of the River. Um, And we basically watched this young child or preteen. He's 11 years old named Ricky. And he's of this uh, Ruya community in Peru. And we just see his father as he attempts to teach his child how to catfish with a very specific uh, approach with like a hook, I guess. I guess this is like the thing that they do in this tribe and uh, something that's passed along, you know, orally. And we just see a very traditional approach. And all it is is a document of like watching this 
individual, this man, Arlindo, teach his son, Ricky, how to catch a catfish. He's struggling, and it's, like, very large. They keep talking about, like, a giant catfish. And when you see glimpses of it, it is it is intense. It's, like, seven feet. Oh, my god! it looks like it's, yeah, it looks like it's 20 pounds. And there's, like, a moment where the where the dad's, like, did you catch it? And the boy's, like, no, I didn't catch it. It got away. And, of course, yeah. it's, like, it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to go down there and catch me some catfish. Give me a fish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh huh. It's gonna be giant catfish. That's bigger than those catfish you catch in the creek. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You don't want this thing wrapping its mouth around your arm. That's for sure. You know, suck your whole body in. <laughs> eat but, you. Uh, yeah, eat you. Eat you. So, like, that's another documentary. That was a short. It had really great sound design. It was interesting that, like, the 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 crew would be far away and you kind of see the boy down it'd be like up on a hill looking down at the river and you kind of see the boy go in but the sound design kind of did not simulate the perspective of the camera you would hear underneath the water when the when the child went under even though we're kind of far away i thought that was a really interesting thing that happened midway through the film and then we slowly as he gets closer and closer to being more skillful and catching the catfish we start to go under the water and we really start to hear the sound and then there's this interesting moment where he like the boy comes back up and he doesn't have the fish but the audio is like we're still under the water and we can't quite hear some of the things that he's saying and it occurred to me that the audio and sound design is really allowing us to identify with the catfish and not the boy so I thought that was really interesting. And maybe it says something, you know, about how they relate to the catfish more than each other or something. I don't know. Um, hmm. But I thought that was an interesting sound design. There's other nice glimpses of other animals. Like in the sound design also, there's like these really prominent bullfrogs, very distinct sounds. And, you know, we catch glimpses of turtles and reptiles and birds. And, yeah, it was nice. And then, you know, it's coming of age tale, essentially. If he can catch this catfish, fish you know he'll be a provider to his community so that mm. those are the stakes uh so yeah that was nice you know documentary i'm trying to think if there's any other uh, you know sky hopinka had another work here like he normally does uh great to see the development of his work and you know his work sometimes straddles documentary um so his work this year at sundance was sunflower siege engine was primarily shot in a variety of different locations, but there's a very prominent moment where we kind of see a laptop in a room, just sort of like seems like an apartment or like a hotel, and the laptop's very prominent, and it's basically um, news footage. And it's from KRON4, which is the Bay Area um, news channel, and it's footage of Alcatraz, from 1969 and it's the proclamation that's given about how Alcatraz is going to be reclaimed and it's a, a moment to talk about how Alcatraz is very similar to reservations without running water without power without education you know so like we see footage of Richard Oakes talking about this on the laptop then we go to some poetry on the screen and there's a reference to this particular poem by Adrian C. Lewis called Elegy for the Forgotten Oldsmobile. 
um, in which it states, oh, Uncle Adrian, I am on the reservation of my mind. So there's, you know, like this <clears throat> parallel between the idea of the reservation and how we see that become like a metaphor or symbol out in the world and how we use that as a way of communicating our relationship to other communities. And the news is pushing this, I guess, through that footage. There's also, you know, moments of this poem that are laid visually over ocean water. It seems to link it to that proclamation about uh, taking over Alcatraz. You know, at some point, I think in the proclamation, it's not in the film, but like in the original proclamation, it says something about how Alcatraz parallels the Statue of Liberty. You know, when like immigrants come into the country, it's like one of the first things they see. And it gives you an indication of like what you're going to face when you enter these lands. And the Statue of Liberty is one thing. And of course, they, you know, they in the proclamation, they'll also parallel Manhattan as something that was purchased with very few beads and dollars. And they're asking for the same amount with Alcatraz. But Alcatraz then becomes the symbol of like, this is what's going to happen if you come to these lands. You're going to be incarcerated and you're going to have no resources and you're going to have this sort of, you know, contentious relationship with these other communities. And you're going to be an island separated from everybody in the world, um, almost like barren lands. So it feels like the ocean sort of links to that notion for me in the film. You know, it's very poetic and it's, you know, you have to connect these things if you I guess have read further or are very familiar with these documents. And then of course he's got like pop songs. There's this song called tidal wave. It's just really nice from a group called room 13 just has a nice kind of rockabilly feel to it. And it's sort of have a moment of levity <clears throat> and moments of driving and sort of like exploring space and time. And you kind of go up and down about like beauty and land and, and it's all communicated again through these moments of poetic, language and references to um, Alcatraz, I guess, and poetry. So yeah, that played, I don't think it premiered here. This is a work that's also been commissioned by the San Jose Museum of Art. So it's probably either played there or will play there. Sunflower Siege of Engine, which has some documentary-like elements in it. I think those are pretty much the documentaries that I saw. You didn't see the Judy Bloom or the big award winning yeah good question so the stuff that i saw at sundance let me actually see i have to look up i have to reference my list oh nikki giovanni that was the other big one i did not see judy bloom i didn't see that one at all documentary wise um i saw a really great film called food and country by laura gibbert or laura gabbert excuse me food and country and it's pretty much just look, looking at the system of how we <clears throat> prioritize economy over health really you know it's mm -hmm. just an argument about you know how can we improve um and how can the farmers benefit and uh was really through the eyes of a, a, a food critic named ruth reichel who's an activist and a food critic and uh, this is a really great documentarian um there's a a documentary that they did that I just love called City of Gold, also following another um, food critic in Los Angeles, the great food critic named Jonathan Gold. And he's like one of the f first and maybe the only food critic to ever receive a Pulitzer Prize 
and really looking at like the the nuances of how culture comes through food and then how your interaction with food is like this cultural transaction and it can mean something larger than just satisfying hunger oh yeah that got some buzz i remember hearing about that yeah it's a really great documentary so i think it's sort of like in the vein of that um a little bit food and country that was a great documentary and uh there was this documentary called against the tide which um also won an award and that's pretty much looking at indigenous fishermen in india and the larger questions about what fishermen have to do when it seems like there's not a there's not a lot of fish in our global crisis fish are decreasing in their number but fishermen remain the same and they're at waters that are like accessible to china china can come in very close to where they're allowed to fish where they're allowed to fish have a lot of restrictions the time of day, the number of fish, and then the procedure. China is not barred by any of these. (laughs) So, of course, they come over. Yeah. And then the biggest thing that happens in this film is that uh, one of these fishermen is trying to accommodate the new style of Chinese fishing, which is using LED lights at night. So you can go at the time of day where there's more fish, apparently, but you're not distracted by other fishermen, and you can clearly see the fish a little bit better. And Maybe they're attracted to the line. I'm not sure, but it sounds like ecologically, this is detrimental to like the, yeah. The population. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely those rules are in place for sustainability. Yeah. In in theory. Yeah. So we, you know, that's the, the crux of the conflict and whether or not one of these individuals is able to like convince other people to utilize this, or if he's able to do it and be it economically feasible. These are the questions. Can he get away with it? It's also part of it. And we really kind of, it's a little bit like hoop dreams where you kind of follow two different individuals with two different paths. One of them is definitely more into it than the other. And one is a little bit more traditional. Um, and so like, there's like this spiritual uh, grounding of we, we've got to do it a certain way and we've got to think a certain way. And that seems to be clearly in contrast to somebody who's like, it doesn't matter. Like we're fighting the world economy and we're fighting China and uh, we just want to eat and live. Uh, so we got to use the lights. And what's interesting is both of these films against the tide and then food and country are really looking at the crises of farmers today. And at both a call of action for the world to reconsider how food comes to our plate and what we should be thinking about and expecting uh, from the farmer side because mm-hmm. the it's not sustainable because of the demands of the industry mm-hmm. the shipping and then the prices in comparison to like food that does not have good nutrients yeah that's one thing good that food and country is really good about is like really clarifying the history of like the decline of the food industry as a result of fast food and, and that being linked to american culture if you watch one of these, I would say watch the other one. <laughs> Maybe it's too much, but it was like they're really helpful to understand like the larger picture of like where we're at in our issues with food. But Against the Tide was really interesting uh, as a documentary, not necessarily uh, an indigenous directed film, 
but won an award primarily because the documentary feels like it's fiction. It's so intimate in the way that it's cut and shot. It feels like they blocked it out and could get the camera wherever they wanted. And you see these moments of vulnerability and revelation of just like characters just say what they think. That takes a lot of talent to figure out how to capture all that. Yeah, I mean, it won the Verite Award, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Against True. the Tide. Yeah. There was a great documentary, Invisible Beauty, uh, about fashion revolutionary Beth Ann Hardison. She, we just kind of see this documentary as it goes into history of how she reformed the modeling industry as a precedent to thinking about equity of race in in their industry. Image is such a big part of fashion. It was momentous in being able to communicate that like black bodies are beautiful. And then in terms of hiring processes, as well as aesthetic beauty. And, you know, it seems to be an argument that where we are in our political rights for underrepresented people in, in multiple industries is rooted in this particular moment of time. That didn't win any awards, but that was a great personality to observe. Seems to be a very important person that we should know about. And it was fun. It was a good documentary. There's like really moments where it's like really rallying. You really agree. And you're like, yeah, this is, you know, why didn't this happen sooner? There was one that was really great called The Stroll. Two documentarians, uh, Zachary Drucker and Kristen Parker Lovell, and they look at the history of New York's meatpacking industry and the transgendered sex workers in this mm -hmm. uh, area of New York in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, before it's uh, gentrified. You know, it's just like really amazing footage that they somehow recovered. This is like one of those documentaries. This is a trend I see now where like, because there's so much need for content, uh, people are able to make documentaries with any kind of existing footage. Something that has been underserved or underrepresented or, you know, hidden or private, you know? So like, this is an example of, I guess a larger, more popular example of this is like the, a larger example of this would be the Val Kilmer documentary. Oh yeah. Where we kind of look at historic, historic footage that he's collected over time collected, and it's just like a yeah. private archive right yeah the same thing happened with um the star 90 film and i think it was um i'm forgetting who it was maybe Solier moon fry who was sort of yes, documenting that's what it was yeah right yeah documenting her youth and always shooting cameras and always collecting footage mm -hmm. so like all that stuff's been amassing in these private collections because there's, they were former celebrities or are still celebrities, you know, all that footage is still usable. People know who they are. So looking at this old footage is, uh, makes some sense now that they've got like a full career and maybe some political things to say about identity and mm -hmm. uh, equity. But like, this is a trend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's going to be where we're going to, to is these type of movies. Even thinking about the Alcatraz, uh, film that you talked about. I mean, there is a lot of footage in, in San Francisco of those interviews and those film footage and those uh, news footage that I, while you were telling me that, I was like, that it's in and of itself, just using all that footage that's already created is, we could tell the whole story of what happened in Alcatraz 
without needing to have talking heads, without needing to have any voiceover or anything like that is what I feel. And so I think we're getting more to that, especially with the way we have so much control over our media and the way we're, we have so much cameras going on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that stuff today, yeah, you're right. Today, it's just amassing somewhere and some hard drive somewhere. And everybody is just shooting and shooting and shooting on phones and hard drives, NASA or the NSA or the CIA, all this stuff is amassing somewhere. Uh, but yeah, the Alcatraz, that would be great. Like you just describing that made me think about, you know, like there was the Apollo documentary, like that brought in all this footage that we hadn't seen before from the Apollo uh, mission. And I would love to see that for the Alcatraz occupation. Or even the whole era, if we just use only all archive footage and see what kind of story you can make out of that. And then yeah. maybe even uh, with Standing Rock, I bet there's a lot of footage that people have shot themselves as well as any other news footage that was there at the time. Yeah, because I haven't seen as many Standing Rock documentaries or even or anything than mm-hmm. I thought I would. Just because everybody yeah. has a camera. Everybody had a camera that was there. Mm-hmm. So I thought we would see a lot more found media documentaries from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were a lot of filmmakers who were out there too. You yeah. Know? And we're, mm-hmm. yeah, we're all of, those. Yeah. And there, there are sections of it. I will say that Fox Maxi, who we've talked about on this podcast before, Fox Maxi has had a documentary that really looked at standing rock footage and really analyzed kind of like the overhead uh, satellite stuff as well as on ground. But it does like kind of go into other areas. But you're right. I feel like I was also anticipating that. It's weird. I think like there's probably a documentary out there somewhere, but I feel like there's not one that comes to mind immediately. But yeah, that that could totally happen in Alcatraz with all the footage. And it's timely. It feels like that's something that's definitely happening right now. But anyway, I mean, the stroll, looking at these transgendered sex workers in downtown Manhattan, the meatpacking district, it's using... uh, documentary footage that was never finalized and one of the cool things about this film is that one of the directors is one of these uh transgendered sex former sex workers and we kind of see her transition from somebody who was like a somebody in that period of time being uh, basically at the hands of these cops white clients and now she's transitioned into becoming a director so you know like the film works on many levels and she's able to control her own image in many ways and we kind of see the story of this person become a filmmaker and uh, bringing back people from that period of time and really allowing us to like identify with these different personalities and a lot of it is from footage that was captured and never cohered into like a document from that time uh, or at least never released so that's really awesome and um, again, I think that's working where it's like the stories communicating the idea of a transgender narrative. Um, we see a transition. So, yeah, that's really that was a really powerful one. I feel like that could probably have won something. It did. Um, it won the special jury award just like Bad Press did. OK, yeah. OK, yeah. That's very cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, those are some you know, documentaries in general that I think were just something to see at Sundance. And if you're interested, check some of these out. On the narrative front, so, you know, like there's a good a good number of indigenous works. Some of them were shorts, you know, so like there was this really fun one called Headdress. 
and uh, it's primarily yeah i mean yeah talk talk about topical with all the festival season coming up and everybody's propensity to wear headdresses right yeah absolutely music festivals and how cringy Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. yeah i I was really interested in that inner i guess is it an inner dialogue where he's trying to come Mm -hmm. up with yeah how he's going to confront these people yeah absolutely it's inner dialogue and um it's a queer indigenous filmmaker and there are basically one two three four five identities Mm. that are in this like internal monologue you kind of like it starts off with just you know like this woman who's casually walking talking on the phone and has a headdress on at a music festival and we see our indigenous protagonist sitting there with two friends and they're kind of like, are you going to say something about this? Mm-hmm. And it stops like the movie and everything stops. And we kind of go into his eye and into his head. And then we're now in a headspace where there are these five different identities and they're all hashing out their different responses. And the mm-hmm. question is who's going to get the response out to the mouth, basically, who's going to be able to have the right words. And we kind of see these different identities like a queer identity. There's like a bougie identity. There's a tribal identity, like a traditional like headdress of his own. There's a goth identity. And then there's this funny joke about like the future identity that they don't know is what, what it's going to be next. Um, and it, it's just sitting on a chair as like this like racquetball or something um, <laughs> that farts. Uh <laughs> In all of these different identities, you know, like they're really, they're all played by the same individual who's the director. So like, uh, there's great performance skills. It's really fun. Every time we're introduced to a new identity, there's like a, you know, a flash of like their name and then, you know, attributes of their personality, you know, so like the queer one comes up and it's, you know, it says, you know, uh, never seen moonlight or something. And then like allergic to like a certain kind of material or something. It's very fun. It's, it's addressing this question about what, uh, what do we do when we see misappropriation and then how we wrestle with that. And sometimes the issue passes us by because we're still trying to figure out the right way to address this because there are mm-hmm. so many different sides of our own internal monologue. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing it's, it's doing. And then the other is it's, you know, it's just a nice way to communicate that, you know, we're complex people and we're not like, well, only in indigenous wear, and that's not the only perspective about this. And there are different sides to our identity that include popular culture and traditional culture, and you know, uh, like class differences. Yeah, so that was really fun. And the director, yeah. he's a comedian, and did he write for Rutherford Falls or was in Rutherford Falls? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. He could have Tate Saran Leclerc, I believe. Um, I do know that he is a 2002 Native Program Fellow from Sundance. So, you know, they're supporting their own. Um, I know that he's Mohawk and Micmac. I feel like this might be the first short of theirs that's like at least um, presented by Sundance. But I know that the Program Fellow. He's, he was a writer on Rutherford He was Fox. a writer. Yeah. Yeah, a writer and actor on Rutherford Falls, a writer and actor. So good for him. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I guess he's also a former performer at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And so well trained. 
You really what if he knows it. our friend yeah. Joey Clift. <laughs> yeah, I th- you know what? And he does thank Joey Clift in the in the credits. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's a fun ACB, film. It's really, very yeah, very colorful, like really poppy colors with each identity, reds and greens and yellows and uh really great tone. It's like the performers are all funny and it's a fun one. It felt like that was a great moment of levity compared to like the, all these other films that are kind of dealing with these heavier issues. It was nice to have fun with that one. There was a Navajo-focused fiction called I Am Home. I guess it's somewhere between fiction and kind of poet poetic expression um, of just thinking about home and land and utilizing, you know, a traditional Navajo voiceover from the grandmother of the filmmaker. So uh, Komodo Gray Horse is Navajo and um, also a full circle fellow and uh, also was the art director on the original shareholder experience if people are familiar with that one that was a great mm. short from a couple of years ago um but really just sort of beautifully depicting a hogan in a very traditional way we kind of like see the elements of like you know mud on the top of the hogan and we kind of see the the woodwork from the inside and how it's structured there's just you know a talking through about how mud and clay and the wood are uh, uniting um, and connecting the identity to earth the you know the wood is a, paralleled with like the bones of an identity and the windows of the hogan are like the eyes and then we kind of see it change across time like that's sort of introduced at the beginning of the short and then we kind of see a more modern building mm. and we just kind of see how you know appearance doesn't matter that seems to be part of the statement is that the function remains the same identity and the spirit remain the same despite the difference of appearance and then you know like there's a running you know running is certainly part of like this coming of age and i feel like that's part of this um and it kind of has this one final moment of the, the young woman kind of like confidently looking at the screen and you know it's like a declaration of this is you know how do you accept me who i am um despite my appearance i am you know i am who i am Mm-hmm. And this is what Navajo are really, you know, beautiful montage kind of shifting through these different details. Good performer. Nice. It's nice to hear this like elder speak. So perhaps more poetic than it was like straight narrative, but it was fictionalized. Hot Waikiki, that was a short, primarily Maori and focus. And it's, it, it seems almost too simple. You basically just kind of see these young Maori children in teens and preteens as they basically just kind of construct the house, you know, like they're sort of like out collecting wood and they're collecting grass and they're collecting objects that allow for this sort of like um, structure to be built just out. Uh, and, you know, like they're kids. So they're like hanging from trees and, you know, they're talking to each other and, you know, sort of chasing each other sometimes. And sometimes they're working, sometimes they're playing. Uh, I think the the idea behind this is that we're essentially seeing, you know, the self-sufficiency and the self-dependence of these children, which is really related to this idea, I think, that um, Maori have about that particular, the title. You know, I mean, we do get a sense that these children are really at peace with each other. They're able to achieve things without the guidance of adults necessarily, but there's probably like 
the spirit of this space and the spirit of them together. It feels like those things we really get a sense of. And we're really admiring of the beauty of the location. It's really lush photography and really beautiful location with the trees. And, you know, it's like the sun's going down a little bit. It's like late afternoon and we get like golden sun rays coming in on these children and beautiful close-ups of their faces. And it's just very peaceful. And it's really like, you know, affirming of light. And it feels like, it feels like this other genre of indigenous cinema to me, which I, I just think of as medicine cinema. It's not about the conflict necessarily. It's not really emphasizing that it's about healing and sort of thinking about the positivity that comes with um, connecting with each other and connecting with, you know, whatever spiritual um, aspects of our identity. And it feels like that's what's happening in this. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really nice. It's really, you know, beautiful. I see a lot of, you know, non-Indigenous people respond to this film like, what's the point? And okay, so they built a structure or like, yeah, kids play. You know, somehow that's like overlooking the the point of the film. Uh, from what I understand, the title H-A-W-A-I-K-I uh, refers to kind of like a place of origin. So it's also maybe an origin story to some degree. And we're kind of seeing like the future result from origin and I guess it's the place where you start and it's the place where you return. So maybe the children are also symbolic, you know, this harmony of who we were or who we could become and that we could be self-dependent and we don't need other people guiding us through. You know, so it's like this poetic depiction of sovereignty to some degree. Yeah, it sounds very tonal. Yeah, it's very tonal. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's another short called Unborn Biru. Not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but Unborn Biru, B-I-R-U, um, directed by Inga Elin Marakat of Sami descent, and it takes place in Norway. It seems like it's, you know, the early part of the 20th century, you know, so like Christianity is sort of entering into Norway at that point, and much like the United States, you know, the church is indoctrinating or it's like shunning people. And that's kind of what we see. It's like a hard winter, harsh in Norway. And, you know, we see basically a woman who's bereaved at the beginning of the film. And she's also pregnant and has like, you know, probably an eight-year-old child who's hungry. And um, she goes to what seems like a, a collective home. There's like a, you know, they're singing hymns. They're sort of motioning like they're Catholic and she's asking if she can get some help and they're refusing um and primarily by saying you know she's married to a, a thief so why would we help her you know dividing people based on their prejudices related to formalized religion uh and she goes back and her child is saying that she wants butter she just wants butter on bread and so the mother that makes a decision to to be a thief she's exactly what they say that she is and she's put in that position because she has no other recourse you know so we see her steal and in the same circumstance she uh, essentially goes to what i think is like a a parlor at this point in the winter you can't bury anyone you know so like there's this storage space where you know a deceased body is being protected until there's thaw and you can put them in the ground so we see her go into this room and she basically is like stealing from a dead body and a coffin. 
and she makes a decision to steal this like um silver brooch or like um i'm not sure what the object is but she steals this object off of the body and it's silver it's like a pendant and then she takes that somewhere and she is able to purchase butter and then she comes home back to her child and she says i've got butter now and and then she puts the pendant on the child and from this decision there are now like these consequences that kind of feel like they're like in the direction of the omen you know like the original richard donner omen from the 70s where like there are these events that happen and like the child is smiling as like the mother gets into danger and it feels like there's like the supernatural control that's related to that pendant and um <laughs> so is this like is this like les miserables meets the omen i probably yeah that's probably the way to describe it it's like les mis at the beginning and it turns into the omen as a result of the stealing. <laughs> awesome yeah and this is yeah. a feature no, this is a short film. It, it probably okay. could be a feature. It feels like it's probably arguing. You know, it's like it sounds a like a feature. It needs yeah, to be a uh -huh. feature too. It, it needs to be. Like... Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably be much stronger if it were a feature because I feel like you get into a lot of these details. There's there's only a couple of moments where the mother kind of gets in trouble. There's this one where the reindeer basically like takes off. I don't know the reins uh, circle around the mother's foot. And she's dragged probably for miles like when she's able when the reindeer stops she's like just like bloody and like a pulp on her face and and it's like intercuts to the child like smiling you know like damien controlling the <laughs> hell dogs or whatever uh, but i think only we know that and she doesn't know that so anyway like that was an interesting sammy horror and i think the title b-i-r-u unborn biru yeah, what I've identified is that that's sometimes a word utilized for the devil. Uh, I haven't confirmed that with any Sammy speakers, but it seems like that, you know, that's something I did glean from it by just watching the movie. It's like, oh, like this is the omen a little bit. So, yeah, don't steal. Um, <laughs> there, There is like, there's definitely like, it's a horror because there is also like, you know, the, the woman is pregnant and out of that circumstance of the reindeer dragging her across you know, the Arctic, basically, it seems like she's got a miscarriage. And we see, you know, like, blood and, you know. Ugh. So it gets, there's like some, there's some, you know, gore involved. So just be aware if you're going to watch this. But otherwise, you know, it's like a beautiful film. Supportive. <laughs> it's going to become a movie. I want to see the feature. Yeah. So that was another short. And um, I think those are the primary shorts that played. Um, there was an experimental feature that played, right? So like this is Fox Maxi's Gush, which is something that we played here at the Rodeo Cinema. And so that played a part of the New Frontier program. So it's great to see that they're playing Fox Maxi. And then I think there are kind of like two uh, indigenous related uh, features that are heavy hitters. So one was Bad Behavior. So, yeah, what was uh, that about? I mean, yeah, yeah. Jennifer Conley in in an indigenous movie, which I mean, I like and I like her, but it was just I was like, this is weird. Yeah, it is weird. It it is a. It, I'll say you know I did not see this movie because I did not associate it with an indigenous producer, which is which is the case. Desiree Armstrong is an indigenous producer, and she has worked with Taika before, so she was like on the crew for wilder people and what we do in the shadows, the feature. Um, and I think maybe she did some work maybe on res dogs. If I'm not 
maybe maybe I'm incorrect about that, but uh, you know she's worked with Taika before, and she was the producer on this film, and I think that's primarily where the indigenous element comes in, uh, because it is, you know, it seems like it's Jennifer Connelly's as a protagonist, and it's about a former child actor that you know goes to this spiritual leader who is not played by an indigenous actor. You know, it's just about her relationship with her child. And it seems to be about like whether the child's going to follow her footsteps and she's trying to, you know, navigate the world of entertainment today across two different generations. But uh, I didn't see that film. So I don't, I don't really know. I can't speak to if it's good, if it's bad, if that really is what happens in the film. It is nice to see indigenous producers just making movies, you know, and, you know, they're not relegated to just like indigenous work. Like, oh, you're, you know, you're a Maori, so you can make Maori movies now. I, that's a discussion. I remember we were talking with Randy Redroad when he made a film that was non-native and how he was mm-hmm. so excited and happy about making a non-native. He's a, and the best thing about it, it's not an Indian film. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to feel about it because... You know, part of me thinks that our Indian in, indigenous people can play these characters themselves as not indigenous identified. Again, if you're given a chance to put Jennifer Connelly in a movie and you get funding for that, then what do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you do? Well, you, uh, if I were that person, I would say yes. <laughs> you got to get a paycheck. You got to live. Yeah. And if it's a story you care, obviously she's a producer, so it's a story that they care about that it's something that they want to tell so you don't become a producer of a movie and willy-nilly you know <laughs> it's good that people are working support people support that work you know if that film does well they'll keep getting work in the area of yeah. producing regardless of that sounds like a movie that will be released of some kind yeah it seems like it should be released uh, i will say just, just speaking about like being released and distributed most of these films as far as i know at this moment have not stated whether they have a distributor yet. That happened less this year. Is that correct? Like there was like less less of like buyers, I guess you would call it. Is, is that what I understand? It right? seems like that's the case. Yeah, it seems like that's the case. I hardly saw as many reports this year as I have in the past years. But also this, I think, was the first year where they had so many films coming in that already had a distributor. And this is the first year where I've seen so many A24s come in that have already had a film like they weren't buying it was an interesting year because of all those things and i you know i don't know what that means you know because amazon and netflix i'm sure were there and you know they're the big hitters that should be releasing some of these things if it's not theatrical so the other big feature that's indigenous focused was fancy dance directed by erica tremblay and so seneca cayuga uh previous uh, Sundance supported filmmaker had a short film, Little Chief, that had Lily Gladstone that played at the festival just prior. That was like the last year that Sundance was in person. Um, and now she's come back with her first feature, the year that it starts back in person, and also starring Lily Gladstone. Great reviews, both like officially from real critics out in the world that make a living off of being critics, and then, you know, non professional amateur critics. There's a lot of positive feedback about this film yeah online it was getting some chatter on twitter mm-hmm. just yeah i mean like there's already memes about like the wardrobe yeah you know having fun about what what 
the character wears when they're dancing. Yeah. So, you know, this is another missing and murdered indigenous woman focused narrative. Lily Gladstone is basically the aunt of a young woman coming of age named Isabel, like the actor's actress, Isabel DeRoy Olson. So they're related. And at the beginning of the film, we start to learn that the mother is missing and the daughter is expecting her to come back and she's kind of preparing for a powwow that's coming up with the expectation that the mother is going to be there for the powwow. There's like a moment where she walks into the mother's bedroom. It's all dark and isolated and quiet. And she turns on this footage of them dancing at this powwow in past years. And they've received an award or recognition for being like the best mother daughter dancers. And I guess at this powwow, there's a mother daughter dance. This is what she's anticipating. And these are the stakes is that they are they going to retain the title? Um, are they going to be able to have a mother-daughter moment? Because the mother is missing, of course, uh, child welfare looks into the circumstances and realizes that she should not be with Lily Gladstone because Lily Gladstone also has things on her record that the state does not like. So then, you know, torn apart. And then it becomes a story about Lily Gladstone figuring out a way to take this young woman to the powwow while also simultaneously trying to sway her brother, Lily Gladstone's character's brother, who's a cop, a tribal policeman, trying to sway him to look in the direction of clues about where her sister might be and who might be involved. But he's finding it difficult. Shay Wiggum, you know, so like the great Shay Wiggum character actor. Uh, I'm trying to think of what he's been in. I know that he was like in Splinter, which you know, shot here in Oklahoma. <laughs> but he was, I guess maybe Take Shelter is something that he was in from like 2011 and um, American Hustle and Nonstop. <laughs> you know, and then he'll, it looks like he's going to be in the Mission Impossible films, you know, so like, you know, big guy, you know, is in the, you know, F9. So like he's often like these action films. He's also a detective in The Joker. So that that's the character actor that plays the father of Lily Gladstone and her sister. And so because he's the grandparent and he's, you know, pretty conventional and has moved on, it seems like, like has moved away and is not in the life of these young women. Both his daughters, the missing daughter and Lily Gladstone, and then not the granddaughter. But he's the one that's going to receive the custody, mm. right? Because of family lineage. So there's this larger question of like, is he the right parental guidance? Is he the right guardian? So there's also like these questions about the law, despite the family. And of course, they're a mixed family because he's Caucasian. So he's also hunting her down. He's hunting Lily Gladstone down to get the child back. So it's a little bit of a chase film. It's a little bit of like procedure and detective. And then it's coming of age and the bonding between an auntie and a daughter. And really at the end, you know, through the, the language of Cayuga, we learn something specific about what, how, what the word of aunt means. And it redefines the relationship between these two women. You know, so like there's this like linguistic twist to the film. I'm not going to reveal it because you should watch it and, you know, it'll probably mean something differently. But like that really changes the direction of the narrative and the story. 
And of course, the climax is the powwow. So wonderful to see a powwow. So wonderful to see all these dancers, real dancers. It reminded me of Powwow Highway, where we're talking about like real people caught on camera and doing exactly what they would do in real life. You know, and there's like, you know, real people from Oklahoma in in the shot. And it really feels like it's yeah, just, even though it's see me? not a real powwow. Uh, I did not see you. Did you see me or Matt? I did see you. Me or Matt Bars? <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I saw Matt Bars. Um, I saw Matt Bars. Uh, I saw Brent Greenwood's wife, Kenesa Greenwood, um, but I didn't see you, but you know, I only, I only saw twice. And, you know, I was walking with round. Matt. I had a red. Oh, you were? Thing. Yeah. Okay. Well then, you know, uh, maybe I'll watch it again. <laughs> I was, wa- you know, one of these screenings, I was watching it on a smaller screen. No, no, I would have been, yeah, I would have been very difficult to to spot because it was nighttime, and, but yeah, and we're all dark. Night, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, nighttime powwow taking place at First Americans Museum in downtown Oklahoma City. Um, Oklahoma filmmakers, Angela's there. At <laughs> Bars was there. Tell us a little bit about um, your memory of of yeah. that location. That gives the backstory. Well, we all followed COVID protocol because it was, what was it, September, I want to say. So not very long ago. So, I mean, they they got this done really fast. And she, you know, she started out the whole evening with a little ceremony, which was really lovely. And they had a little blessing and it was just kind of helped everybody get settled in after going through all of the COVID tests and background you know how they shuffle you off to holding and pick out your wardrobe and well not a lot of people do know that but there's a lot that goes on when you're background just because you have to get checked in you have to go to holding you have to get your wardrobe approved you have to go back to holding and then as they're shooting scenes they come out and they pick out who they want in each background and they shuffle you mm-hmm. up to set and then they set you out mm-hmm. where they want you and move you around and, you know, have you do silly things in the background to make it look authentic. Cause and actually they were passing out popcorn and hot dogs and stuff like that, <laughs> which was fun. <laughs> they had vendors set up, which we could actually shop at. So in between takes, really? yeah, in between takes, we would go to all the vendors and, you know, get some new earrings and some <laughs> t-shirts and stuff like that. So that was fun. Uh, at about, That's very cool. Yeah. At about midnight, they dismissed all of the people under 18 by what, 530 or six. I think Matt and I were like, you know, we're going to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because they were, they were still mm-hmm. shooting. And you guys started probably about that same time the previous day, like six. Or uh, so, I think seven we had to be there, kind of early, four or five, yeah. No, four, yeah. And get to get into yeah, I guess there's stuff. a lot of wardrobe. And, but the right, yeah. the funny thing that I remember about all of this is I don't know if you ever watched the show Extras. Yes. With um, oh my gosh, what's his name? With Ricky Gervais. With Ricky Gervais and yeah, how all of the. Ba- extras in film kind of have their little conversations about oh were you in this well I was in this and oh did I see you on set for this and mm-hmm. oh what have you been doing since we did this mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that was literally mm-hmm. the conversation in queue 
it was so great that I was surrounded by all these native <laughs> people in at First American Museum. And I was like, oh, were you uh-huh. uh, were you on Echo? Because I went out for Echo and they had me doing this, this, and this. And oh, but did you what about killers? Were you on set for killers? Oh, I think I remember seeing you on killers. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, it's the native version of extras. <laughs> of extras, yeah. It was so great. That's amazing. Live it the dream. It was literally living the dream. <laughs> That's amazing. That was my, that was the best part of the whole night. <laughs> well, you know, Although one thing I'll try and be. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, the one thing that people don't realize about back, being background is there is a lot of sitting around and waiting. <laughs> and so, you know, right, yeah. if you're if it's your first time and you get there and you're like, oh, I'm going to be on on the big screen. No, you're not. Mm-hmm. you're going to be a blob mm-hmm. in the backgrounds <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're going to wait yeah. around for hours but it's still fun to see everybody and see how they make a movie and it was really nice to see how they shot this and brought in members of the community everybody had their regalia on and looked so nice and you know I got to see mm-hmm. some people I hadn't seen in a long time like Marlon Onai and stuff so it was fun it was fun but it was a long night that sounds right that's great though that's that's a good experience to have those like native background artists in in one film, and then also to have that film depict a powwow. I feel like this is missing right now. Um, well, and I felt for the cameraman was... because in the um, the AC crew yeah. because there was a right. lot of movement in that scene by the camera. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like the operator did like to move things around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was um, Charles Elmore on that team. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to see how seeing how it sh- ended up on screen, just because it looked so pretty. Yeah. Just seeing where he was going through the crowd, it looked like it was going to be really pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that it seems like pretty much it seems like there's a lot of reservation dogs crew mm. that went on that team. You know, um, still photographers Shane Brown and oh yeah, uh, Brittany Benavald. Yeah, they're working on the. Well, they were shooting in Charles Tulsa originally, I think, and then they came down for the Palo scene at just for that day. At Fam, yeah, right, yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense, especially considering the fact that Erica Tremblay is also a writer, director mm-hmm. for the show, right? So, if people don't know, she directed the Mabel episode, probably the or not the Mabel episode, roofing, me. roofing. Uh, she, she did the roofing episode, yeah. Which and she did one of the other season. Episode. I can't remember what the other one was, but her, I think her episodes are two of my favorite. Of reservation dogs yeah yeah she's certainly certainly a strong director to be following the fact that people are responding so well to this particular film you know it just means that she's gonna you know skyrocket skyrocket i think so catch this film if you can i think the next thing in her aligned docket is probably the yellow bird series oh i can't wait for that um, i love that book yeah that's a great book so yeah sterling i think and erica are working on that mm-hmm. and it's likely going to be on paramount plus yeah, so Fancy Dance. And a lot of people are talking about Lily Gladstone. It seems like most of us in the Native community are very aware of Lily Gladstone. I think some people out beyond Native community, Indigenous communities, are starting to recognize who, we are, who she is. And I think this film is part of that. I've seen a lot of critics talk about, about her like she's a discovery. And doing great work. It's nice to see the kind this particular role and have her focused as a um, protagonist 
you know, running a gamut of right different circumstances where she's just doing some very good work and seeing her respond to different kinds of other performers and to see her kind of shift between like drama and then like this procedure, see these struggles as somebody that's sort of like skirting the law. It was like she's doing a lot of great things and, you know, bringing some of the other performers up to a different level. So, yeah, Fancy Dance. So I think those are all the films that I saw that were indigenous focused or tangentially indigenous related. Yeah, Twice Colonized. What a great film. That sounds intense. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it is intense. What would you say was your top? Or uh, yeah, what are your tops? Just of the whole festival? Yeah. Or Yeah, of the whole festival. I and of the whole festival. Films. Both. Yeah. There was this yeah, there was this great film that was a documentary called A Still Small Voice, directed by Luke Loretzen. And you just basically watch this hospital chaplain in a in a year of residency, and you kind of see how they handle the circumstances of people who are on their deathbed or in extreme medical circumstances that need medical and spiritual care. And then we see the toll that it takes on them, and then the toll that it takes on their administrator. And it it is amazing how the camera gets where it is and we see the vulnerability and the frustrations that these people reveal to their own counselors in a way that they wouldn't to the public. And the fact that they trusted this filmmaker to be present and to not utilize it against their wishes and just the amazing revelations that it gives the viewer about how the system, you know, really requires all of our medical people to have the same care mm-hmm. and they just go without, you know, it's like an example of the shoemakers, children go shoeless. Mm-hmm. And we kind of see how these people are at the time of like COVID uh, are really in great need of medical, mental, spiritual health. And so that, that was a great documentary, a still small voice. I'm sure it's going to, you know, get bought and play somewhere. Twice Colonized was a really amazing documentary. Um, there's this really beautiful film, it's A24 release, so it'll come out likely theatrically called All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt by Raven Jackson. It's really just looking at these African-American women in Mississippi, and we kind of jump through different periods of a life. It was really reminiscent of Moonlight in terms of the fact you kind of jump through time and you kind of see you know, somebody as they grow older and it's also very poetic. It doesn't really tell you where you are and it kind of doesn't tell you the point of how this scene that you're watching relates to other scenes that have come before or what will happen after. But you really just start to understand like how these women connect to each other and how they pass information on and the sort of resilience despite whatever kinds of adversity occur, some internal in the family and some societal and it's also, you know, coming of age, um, very beautifully captured and the performances are great. And, you know, everybody keeps talking about Raymond Jackson like she is, you know, this genius that the world's going to see and reveal over time. And this was a great film to be introduced to that voice. So it reminded me of George Washington, the David Gordon Green film, like his first film, beautifully captured the light's beautiful, the performance is really nice, and 
got nice sound design and it's really like just cinematic just some, somebody who's just sort of utilizing the tools of camera and blocking and sound design to take you to this place and this identity it's really beautiful yeah that's interesting you mentioned george washington because when you're talking about the uh uh the maori film with the kids playing mm -hmm. that's kind of what mm -hmm. popped in my mind is that and and that one mm -hmm. you know people weren't confounded with it but it's kind of the same it was a tonal film there was not really mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. protagonist antagonist it was just these people mm -hmm. living in mm -hmm. existence so you know how can they feel like they're bumped by that that film whereas this George mm -hmm. Washington film everyone's oh it's such a great film it's all cinematic <laughs> you know? like yeah. it's the same kind of thing you know it's a yeah it totally is it's a form of storytelling and, and, and it should be accepted like you said the intent is what your art art should be it shouldn't be what's considered you know what do you call it like cinematic storytelling but the intent of what you're trying mm -hmm. to do with that story yeah that's absolutely true yeah i didn't even think about george washington with that but that you're right that film and this one are very similar in that yeah so that was a beautiful film and that was great so I encourage people to see that. And again, it's that was one of the films that was distributed by A24 or will be. Um, there was this really interesting film called Other People's Children, <clears throat> directed by Rebecca Zotzlowski. So she's like a French uh, writer-director. A lot of her work are really looking at female protagonists, and they always seem to align with her own age when she's like writing the material. So it seems very personal. And this film starts off as if it's like a conventional romantic comedy this woman played by virginia efra who's like you know a rising french star she was like in the benedetta film that came out last year here in america but she's you know i, I think in a lot of romantic comedy she'd be like a you know one of our romantic comedy stars here in the u.s but she headlines in this film and she's um getting involved in this relationship it's a it's a man who has recently divorced but has a a young child a, a four-year-old daughter and you start to uh, oh there's also this great uh, cameo by uh frederick wiseman the great documentarian who did films on like health systems like welfare is one of the titles or high school just goes into these environments and just documents these really long four-hour documentaries about how these different systems work but he plays an obgyn who reveals to the protagonist that, you know, she if she wants to have children, she better do it quickly. And and she asks how long. And he's like, well, you should think that months or years get to it very quickly. You know, so this is a woman also coming of age and coming to terms with the circumstances of her body at a moment where she starts to realize that, like, this one child is making the idea of children important in her life when she did not consider it prior. And her younger sister is getting pregnant. And really becomes, you know, less a tech and clock movie and the crisis that results from that and more a love story. It's a romance between this woman and this young daughter. And the relationship between she and the father uh, is up for question. But the love between she and that child is not. And, and that was an interesting romantic comedy that shifted from like adults to like the love between these two individuals that are not related, possibly not going to be related, but an adult and a child and, and perhaps a parent, perhaps, you know, an actual child to them. It's just really interesting film. And it's just, you know, got very poppy soundtrack. It's really romantic and 
if you're into romance and you're a Francophile, I would say you should check this out. And I like Zotlowski and I feel like she's somebody to watch. Yeah, I would say those are those are some films that I liked at the top. Some of my favorites. There was a film called The Starling Girl by Laurel Parmet. I think that she's a really great director and somebody to watch. And this might relate to people in the Bible Belt because it's about this very religious community. We kind of see this young woman who's been brought up in this super strict religious environment. And she falls in love with a youth pastor who is married. We kind of go through these moments of question about his intentions. And then we kind of see, you know, maybe it's grooming might be happening. But then we start to see maybe this is about like uh, a revelation about what her own identity is separate from religion. And then we start to think that maybe this is going in the right direction for her. She's sort of like finding her own voice and identity separate from the sort of rigidity of the community. And maybe he does love her and maybe she's learning what love is. And, you know, so it's like coming of identity a little bit and coming of age about love. It's really well-directed, really great performances. Eliza Scanlon, um, a lot of people talked about her and she plays the lead and she was like in Little Women and she was in Old and she was in Sharp Objects. The actress and the director, Laurel Parmet, are people to watch. So if you like performance and drama, uh, you might want to watch it. Now, the film, I think, takes place in Kentucky, the story. And it's so like this religious environment in Kentucky. But the, the, the origins of the story result from the director's experience here in Oklahoma. You know, if you're interested in what people have to say or how they're inspired by Oklahoma events, you know, maybe check that one out. Uh, my favorite indigenous ones, I think I, I kind of gushed about them, but Fancy Dance was definitely one of them. Twice colonized. I think Murder and Bighorn is really revelatory. I would say that you should definitely not miss those. If you haven't seen Gush, if you can find out a way to watch Fox, Fox Maxi's Gush, you should watch that. Just very briefly, I'll say Fox Maxi is an experimental filmmaker, um, does work that is varied in its length. And this is, I think, considered to be their first feature length film. I think it's kind of running at 71 minutes. And it's um, basically looking at trauma and working through trauma in all sorts of forms and the uncertainties of relationships between men and women and how do you confront those circumstances, how do you heal? Fox Baxi is also like somebody who, like some experimental work and filmmakers, they'll just like collect footage all their life. And so a lot of it is like very montage heavy and sort of flashes of material that sort of develops themes over time. And sometimes also like found footage. There's like a Naomi Campbell interview that's been repurposed and talking about the susceptibility to men and relationships and how do you heal and how do you move forward so it's like dealing with some heavy things and then it's also very fun it's just like you know moments where we go to like just dance parties and there's also like this you know pseudo ceremony of like you know bearing the heart and the identity of a previous relationship and you know it's like you're in costume and like you know red lights and like party decorations that's sort of fun and then there's every now and then like social media language that comes up you know like dancing skeletons and icons and emojis and so it's fun (laughs) 
And that's sort of like the personality of Fox Maxie. <laughs> and when she presented her work here at the Rodeo Cinema last uh, November, she just indicated that we spend basically time in her mind whenever we jump into her movies. So there's sort of like a rhythm and a, we literally go through her spaces, her friends, you know, so it's very personal and diaristic also. Quite the uh, summary there, Sunrise. Kind of give us like a overall what your Sundance experience was this year. Overall this year, it was it was nice to be able to sit down and watch stuff virtually. You know, everybody this year, actually, it's interesting. A lot of people are reflecting about Sundance of the past and, you know, they're comparing and contrasting being in person versus being virtual. And of course, everybody says that going to the festival physically is you can't duplicate it because you just run into people, you have conversations in line, you, you meet the people that you want to meet. And the energy of watching it with a crowd is, you know, something that you'll never experience in the same way. But it's nice to just be able to just watch this material online and just sit down and just go through all of them. And because because it's just all available, it's just all just sort of like, it's a fun game of roulette, I think. If you're able to get the pass for a film festival, even if it's not Sundance, it's like a great discovery of just all these different ideas and people and stories and styles. And so like that was really nice to experience. Eugene Hernandez, who's now the director of the Sundance Film Festival, I was glad to experience his influence. I really felt that there were a lot more diverse backgrounds that were being represented. And there was so much material, I, I couldn't get a grasp of the entire festival. Usually I feel like I can, but this one, there were still so many films, like there's Iranian films I wanted to watch and I couldn't, you know, like there's big movies that I, I couldn't watch. Um, there's a great Asian film about called Past Flies, Asian, I think it's Korean uh, love story that I really wanted to watch. So there's still like films that I can't get access to that I've heard about and I want to see. And it feels like there's still energy of Sundance because these films are going to be revealed around, around the globe and across time. So it was fun. It was good. I recommend festivals. Even if you don't get a pass, which is, you know, expensive, it can be hundreds of dollars, some sometimes thousands at least get, you know, one or two tickets and just watch something. I didn't, you know, watch any of the Sundance films, but it seems like I think it's it's good for everyone to have this kind of hybrid presentation of in-person mm. watching as well as giving people mm -hmm. a chance online to watch who can't make it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do every movie, but do some of the movies that, you know, to get that mm -hmm. that word of mouth going. Or was it called word? Mm -hmm. is it, was it called word of mouth? That sounds gross. What's it called? Is it word of <laughs> The buzz. Get the word out, I guess. What? Like, or start a buzz about it. Yeah, get a buzz about it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, if you are interested in film, I think the more you can support people and the kinds of films you want to see, the more we'll see more of those movies. And if you just spread the word, people take notice, I think. I think having a hybrid is really beneficial for that. I think most festivals and most distributors don't, distributors specifically, I think they don't like it. Yeah. You know, just because of pirating or whatever. There you have it. I don't even know if South by South by is the next big one. And I'm not sure if that's going to be hybrid. I don't know. I think it makes it a little more even playing ground for the rest of us that want to at least mm -hmm. see some of it. Mm -hmm. and can't afford to travel and pay for a room. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean like the rooms at Sundance, the last time that I went physically, it was like $900 or something for a room for the week or whatever. Yeah. And then that's that's just the room. It's not like including also like the Uber or the travel that you're doing in town or the food that you're eating there. 
It's certainly no bare bones film festival in Muskogee. Bare bones always has yeah. some really good films too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I always hear filmmakers enjoy being there, like the fans and like meeting people and they take care of the people that go. Yeah. You guys yeah. never been to bare bones? No. I went once a long time ago. Right. Yeah, they're they're real sweet people. Uh, Oscar and Sharon. Sharon. Yeah, it's 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 a fun. Like you said, it's fun. It's like everyone basically wins a prize. Every, if you, if it's your first film festival that you want to feel like you're appreciated, that's the one to go to to you know to, to get the hype. And like you said, it's it's a party, and everyone's like not feeling the pressure of having to spend a lot of money on something because everything almost everything's taken care of for you except for like mm-hmm. bed and breakfast and all that stuff. But, you know, mm-hmm. when you're there, mm-hmm. you get to see all these different films and these, you know, a lot of a lot of them are local Oklahoma films, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. always good to see too. So I would, yeah. I think, well, that's good. Bare Bones is fun. Yeah, Bare Bones. Yeah, so in that, if you're listening and you want to go, that's happening in April, I think it's the 26th to the 30th in Muskogee. If this podcast gets out in time, I guess if you have a film, you can also submit. Oh, you know, so like your deadline is the 28th of February of February. Yeah. And of course, you should also submit to Dead Center, although Dead Center's deadline is coming up very quickly, February 15th. Mm. And our festival will be in June. I've seen yeah. some real, maybe yeah, or maybe not really good screen screenings. Yeah. 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 If you really want to volunteer, there are people that screen films for film festivals. And volunteering is a good way to get into screenings too, because you volunteer, you get to go watch some of the movies and those kind of things. I mean, I used to volunteer for various film festivals. I don't know if I ever did that center, but I did. I, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then again, it's a big party. Everyone's like, mm-hmm. you know, you get to go to the 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 final night parties usually if you're a volunteer, and everyone's thanking you who are running these festivals. They're so very kind to you. Mm-hmm. And usually you get food. I think I did one in uh, New Orleans, and it was the first time I ever ate sushi. And this this person was like, really this person was like, "Hey, look, wait, look what they have back there. It's real good." I said, "All right, what is it? I don't even know what the fuck it is." I just started eating it. I said, "What the fuck is this?" It's a sushi. I said, "Oh shit, that's sushi." All right. And, and then and when you're volunteering, you can meet some of the filmmakers too, so you get to connect with those people in that way too. And then hopefully you'll have a movie next year if you volunteer. That is true. Your, yeah. The connections you make. Thank you, Sunrise, for all of that work. Watching all of those films. Yeah, it was fun and exhausting. I bet. <laughs> Film festivals are hard for me because I can't sit that long. But thank you for doing all of that. We hope that everybody has an opportunity to see your recommendations. And I'm sure that they'll be coming up with programming. I'm sure that they'll be coming up in programming locally and across the nation. So keep an eye out. We will definitely have some links on our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so that you can go check out some of these indigenous films that we talked about, shorts and features. If you want to leave us a a note on any of our socials about what you've seen or what you're looking forward to, please do. We'd love to hear from you. You need to say what those socials are? Noetta's the one that has them memorized. (laughs) (laughs) Our Facebook is... (laughs) Isn't it just real indigenous? Yeah, Facebook and Twitter are real indigenous. And I think Instagram is real indigenous pod. But there's there's periods in various... But I mean, if you use the search bar and you look for real indigenous, we're the only ones. You can find us. 
That's pretty cool. Spelled yeah. R E E L. It is R E E. Real indigenous. Everything between our screen. Wait, what? What is it? Where we look at everything, everything on our screens and everything in between. and everything in between our screens and something else. I know okay. it still doesn't make any sense to me. In between the universe, man. Because sometimes <laughs> we talk about we're about to talk about a book. It's all media, is basically. Yeah. But sometimes we're trying to expand. <laughs> sometimes books are on a screen. So it's kind of like holy shit, everything's blown out of our fucking head, man. <laughs> all things in between, man, between the screen and whatever else you want it to be. <laughs> between you and the screen. Between you and the screen, man, right here. Here to here. Here to here. There's shit right here. And everything in between. I grab a book yeah. right here. If I'm far away from the screen. Something in between. Got my cup in between. Think about it. Atoms, man. Be that close and you still have something in between. You could be touching it there'll be something in between so all this things is... man all things in between dig it this is prime content for people who pay <laughs> yeah but then they all say i want my money back i hope you enjoyed this uh, film festival exploration of this indigenous works um so uh, please uh, uh, join us again. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we're going to investigate some other new content, something between our screens and wherever in between. Until then, don't just keep it real. Keep it, it real. real. That was it, I think. <laughs>